Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Season 2 of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And in this podcast, I travel across the Carolinas seeking out some of my favorite sports legends and asking them to tell me the real stories behind their rise to iconic status. And here's an exciting development for fans of this show. We're working with Pediment Publishing to create a coffee table book of these in-depth interviews and the exclusive photographs that go with all of them, just for you. You'll find transcripts of our interviews, one-of-a-kind photos of each guest, and QR codes where you can download the audio of these conversations to relive them anytime you want. The book is scheduled to be released in fall of 2023, and it's going to make a perfect keepsake for you or a great gift for the sports fan in your life. Check out sportslegendsbook.com. Now, for this episode of Sports Legends, we're in Concord, North Carolina, only about one mile away from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Specifically, we're inside Hendrick Motorsports, one of the crown jewels of NASCAR. And I'm delighted to be sitting with Jeff Gordon, one of the greatest drivers to ever pilot a race car. Become the first driver in the history of Phoenix International Raceway to win a cup race from the pole. Jeff Gordon finally gets his first Phoenix win and ties Dale Earnhardt. Somehow, Jeff Gordon is now 51 years old. He's been a household name in NASCAR for the past three decades. Ever since he burst on the scene in the 1990s and won the first of his four championships in 1995 when he was only 24. Gordon ended up winning 93 races in NASCAR's Premier Series. That's third all-time, behind only Richard Petty and David Pearson. Charismatic and fearless, Gordon turned into such a crossover star that he became the first NASCAR driver to ever host Saturday Night Live. In this interview, we're going to ask Jeff Gordon about all sorts of things, including his rivalry with Dale Earnhardt Sr., his life off the track, and his favorite win of all time. That's next on Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Jeff, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. Quite an introduction. I don't know if I can live up to that, but thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you will. Um, Well, let's start now because I think people are just curious about what you are doing. So tell us. Yeah, well, I mean, you're sitting in my office. I'm I'm here, uh, you know, every week at Hendrick Motorsports as vice chairman. You know, been so fortunate throughout my career to you know not only drive for the best organization and the best owner in Rick Hendrick, but also along the way to to be partners with him um, in motorsports as well as in the automotive side with a with a few dealerships. So, uh, you know, he's just been a tremendous mentor to me, and and you know what he's done for this organization, this race team uh, in particular, uh, you know, by by just guiding this. Uh, the decisions on a on a regular basis, uh, providing resources, putting just great people together, and and so you know he's wanting to take a, a small step back from that, and and this is something that you know I've dreamt about doing for a long long time. When I started seeing myself get closer to uh, retiring from driving, and even though I went and and worked for Fox Sports in the broadcast booth, which I really enjoyed and, and learned a lot about the sport by doing that. Uh, but this is the place that, that I've wanted to be. So I'm very fortunate that, that Rick's put me in this position. And, and you know, I'm, I'm just trying to 
continue on that legacy. It's not a, a specific role that, that is just, here's what I'm doing every day. It's something different all the time, which I think I like, but there's a lot of decisions that you know have to be made, whether they're competition decisions, marketing and PR decisions, or economics of the business. And you are really the number two behind Mr. Hendrick here, right? Well, I, I'm not a big title guy. You know, I was a driver for my whole life. Uh, I just know that uh, I'm vice chairman yeah. and, you know, I get to work alongside some great people. I mean, Marshall Carlson is still very involved. You know, you've got Scott Lampy, Jeff Andrews. So there, there are a lot of um, folks that are playing a big role here. It's a big company as far as racing goes. I, I like to just say I, I, I do my part. I, I, don't, I don't know where I rank. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, you worked at Fox Sports for, I think, six years, right? About six years, yeah. yes. So do you miss the TV aspect of it and being in that role, or do you miss driving? Every, I know you're still traveling, right? You're yeah. often, every weekend almost, you're at the races, right? Just, just yeah. about, not yeah. not throughout the whole weekend, but but I try to make as many races as I can, if not every one. So, you know, doing uh, Fox Sports was great, a great way to transition out of driving the car and, and the kind of intensity and the adrenaline that comes along with driving the car. And then, and actually the, the, the way you prepped for uh, a race broadcast was very similar to the way you prep for for a race uh, as a driver. So I think it was a great way to transition. And I was still part of the competition. A live broadcast is definitely adrenaline that, that comes along with that. And and plus, like I said, I, I learned so much about a different side uh, of the sport from a different perspective. And, and I think that it's really only helped me be more prepared in this role. You know, I, I enjoyed it, but I think that at the end of the day, I'm really enjoying the business side of the sport and, and the challenges that come along with that. Although some days they're immense, yeah, <laughs> maybe a little yeah. more than I'd like to take on, but I do like that challenge. And, and, you know, I think being more part of an organization that I was a part of throughout my career that built my career and, and, you know, I played a role in, in helping to build as well. I think, I think that seems to make, you know, the most sense. It feels the most natural and comfortable for me today. I remember one time we were talking uh, and you were mentioning this is after you'd stopped driving, but that you took your your kids to school almost every day. I think uh, is, is that still the case? Dropped them off this morning. Yeah, <laughs> so, okay. yeah, I, I mean, you know, these days with uh, I mean, my daughter's getting ready to start driving to school oh. on her own. She's she's about to turn 16, which is crazy for me to think about. My wife and I, you know, we try to take, especially as they're now becoming teenagers, those those moments, whether it's dropping them off at school, picking them up at school and, and you know, all the things in between and what we do on the weekends. I mean, that, that's what I do like about this role is that I'm at home on a Friday. I'm, you know, uh, after work, I'm, I'm there on Saturdays and maybe Sunday mornings before I head off to the racetrack. That's something that I never did, not even with Fox, really, um, for that first half of, of the season. So, you know, that, that time with my family is very, very important. And those little moments like dropping them off or picking them up from a track meet or, or my daughter runs track and, or whatever event. It, it may be, I think, is something that I always want to maintain in my, my routine. And your kids are named Leo and Ella, if yes. I'm remembering right. And 
And Leo's younger. So what grade is he in? He's in sixth grade. Sixth grade. So they neither, uh, you're speaking of driving, but you mean driving to and from school or either of them into driving? No racing. Okay. I I mean, we go to the go-kart track and tear it up every once in a while. And and I'm pretty proud of of what they do out there. But they don't seem to, to early when they were like five or six years old, uh, introduced them to quarter midgets, the same thing that I grew up racing in that I was introduced to by my parents. Uh, there's a great track over in, in I think it's either Salisbury, Canapolis area, uh, great quarter midget track. And so, you know, we spent some weekends over there and, and did it for a little while, but it didn't seem to stick and, and they just have other interests and that's fine. You know, I want to support them and, and whatever they're passionate about or whatever their interests are that doesn't seem to be racing. My, now my daughter, she's the athlete in the family. She's, she's the speed demon because, uh, she runs track. She's, she's been a tremendous athlete on, on the try. I love watching her, uh, run. She's a beautiful runner. Um, she plays field hockey and, and she can play about anything. Honestly, she, she can high jump, pole vault, everything, but maybe hurdles. Uh, she can do it all on, on, um, you know, on track and field, which, which is really cool. And, and Leo, you know, he's, I think he might want to be a, a YouTube star one day. <laughs> uh, you know, An influencer. Com- yeah. Completely <laughs> different than, uh, than, than, than really, uh, what Ella's into. Huh. That's neat. And y'all live, you've lived it back in Charlotte for some time now, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. So both of our kids were born in New York. My wife, Inger and I, we met in New York, um, lived there for a number of years, but, and again, it kind of goes back to, I don't want to call it a grand plan, but I did feel like when, when I stepped away from driving that, that I'm going to be in Charlotte on a more regular basis because I knew you know, my equity stake in Hendrick and, and, you know, the dealerships and other things that are embedded here in North Carolina that I'd more than likely be spending a lot more time here. So we put the kids in school here in in, um, the Charlotte area early on, we built a house and, you know, we've been here full time, uh, 10, 12 years now, something like that. But we still go back and forth to New York. We love New York. Yeah, you and Jimmy Johnson, I believe he was telling me y'all were neighbors, right? Well, we, yeah, we're neighbors in, in Charlotte. Yeah. And we used to be neighbors in New York. <laughs> really? or, or kind of. I mean, everybody's a neighbor in New York. Yeah, so yeah, right, right, right. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's go to your racing career a little bit. And, uh, that was a wonderful time in racing, and this is airing in May. So your very first win was in Charlotte at the 600. Very first NASCAR race, Jeff, that I ever covered. I had just started at the Charlotte Observer, so I figured that's all. It's, this is just normal. Uh, Twenty first started together. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> right. You're skyrocketed a little higher. Uh, but tell me about the 1994 Coca-Cola 600 win. Set on the pole at 181.439. He will become only the fifth driver in 35 years to win the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte, North Carolina from the pole. Checkers are out, and they are down, and it is Jeff Gordon victorious this evening. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think between that and the Brickyard 494, 94 was, was really a, a life-changing year for me. I, I've been racing my whole life, and just dreamt about being a, a professional driver at, at, at the highest level. I think along the way, I thought that might be either dirt sprint cars or maybe IndyCar or Indy 500. Uh, and then that that took a turn 
in the um, early 90s and, and started pointing at NASCAR. And I, I feel so fortunate that that worked out the way that it did because I love NASCAR. Obviously got aligned with Rick Hendrick and Hendrick Motorsports. So great team and Ray Everham and, and, and then, you know, just, um, you know, 94 is kind of what kicked off this amazing ride uh, is what I like to call it because it's been more than just a career. It's been more than just racing. It's, it's been, uh, like I said, life changing it. And it all, I think really started, I mean, yeah, you could go back to 93. I was actually uh, uh, doing an interview recently with Richard Petty and Bill Elliott on, you know, my first race and there and Richard's last race and, yes. and, and Bill won that race at Atlanta. That was the 90, end of 92. 92 yes. So that, that first race was certainly a, an important day, but I think it was all building towards how do we get this team into a position a new team, you know, that Ray Evernham came over and, and, and Rick Hendrick put together. And, you know, it, it was a building team. It wasn't, it wasn't established boom right there day one, but obviously the resources at Hendrick, uh, there's a lot to, to build on. So you saw a few things at the end of 93, my rookie year, where we started qualifying better, more consistent finishes. And then that came into 94 and, and really led up to the 600. What, what's crazy when I think about that, is that in 93, my rookie year in the 600, I finished second, I believe, really? to Earnhardt, which, yeah, which, you know, may, I mean, Charlotte was always a great track for me from the very beginning. One of the first tracks I ever tested on in NASCAR was, was Charlotte. Mm-hmm. So I always loved the track, felt comfortable with it. And I felt like Ray, you know, did a great job, you know, setting up the car for me there. And then Hendrick always made great power and they had good success there too. So it, it seemed to to maybe be the tribes where I won my very first pole. And we weren't going to win that day though, I'll be honest. You know, we we were a second place car to Rusty. Rusty had us covered all day. But luckily uh the stars aligned. The 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 cautions didn't fall there at the end and we did a two tire stop and great call by Ray and came out first and you know it was just uh a very emotional day, you know, just to finally achieve that that moment that you've been dreaming about and, and hoping for working towards to see it all come together. It was an amazing day. You were only 22 at the time, I believe. And if I remember, I look back on the, uh, what was written at the time, you were crying over the last five or 10 laps, right? In the, in the race. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person, I don't show a lot of emotion. I probably hold it in, but when, when the moment finally calls for it, it flows <laughs> and I can't stop it. You know, whether that's been, you know, winning championships, winning big races, uh, when my daughter was born, my son was born, you know, just, that's just part of it. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, you know, my, my, my parents were there, you know, to have that moment with Rick and with Ray, his family. Yeah. And the whole team, everything just, uh, kind of culminated to that, that emotional moment that, that started in the car before it was over. I, I think it was, I don't know if it was the last few laps. I think it was more when the white flag came out when the white flag came out and I looked in my mirror and there was no rusty. (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, this, this might happen. This is about to happen. And that, uh, that definitely hit me all at once. Do you miss the, I'm sure you miss some aspects of driving. So do you miss the competition do you miss actually winning that has been my my uh kind of go-to throughout my life uh in, because i was involved in the competition and so now being involved in the competition is more on you know in this new role of 
supporting the teams and seeing them go out and have success and in any way that I can be a part of that. I get to get the reward of that too, because I'm proud of them and, and, you know, to see their journey and, and what they did. Now I kind of understand Rick Hendrick and, and what, you know, how it meant, what it meant to him to go to victory lane and, and why it was so special because of his kind of role in seeing all that come together. So that's the, that, that's the competition side for me now in the race car or in a car, I still do like to get out on the racetrack. I've become more of a car guy actually really? in the last mm. few years for my throughout my whole career. Didn't really collect cars. Uh, didn't go drive cars for pleasure. I got to do that on the racetrack, and I didn't even really own a sports car. I mean, every once in a while, maybe a Corvette or you know, for our foundation, we would uh, raffle or do a sweepstakes for a Corvette, and so I would I would drive that Corvette. But otherwise, really no sports cars. The last two or three years, that's all I'm getting. Really? And, and, wow. What and do you drive now? I mean, I, I do have one of the new Z06 Corvettes. I've, uh, I really think the Porsche GT3 is a, is a good car. That's, so that's the last race that I ran uh, was uh, what they call a Carrera Cup race. And I, I want to have like a factory race car that I can just go to the racetrack with and get in it and go fast and just... Mm-hmm do my own lap times. I don't want to, I, I really didn't want to run that race, but that was sort of a part of, of, of getting that car. But that's what I'm enjoying now is when I'm not, you know, working, when I'm not with my family is, can I go and run some laps at a racetrack and, and just have fun and push it as far as I want to push it and not necessarily be a part of the competition. I've always wondered, like when you're a professional driver like you, so then you get on say I-77 or 485 around here and you see some just horrendous driving from people. They're looking at their cell phones or whatever. Do you get more irritated about that sort of thing because you know what actually driving at a high level is like? Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> or teaching uh, your daughter, for instance, yeah, to I mean, drive. You probably did that, right? That's certainly yeah. been quite the education of taking me back to when I was a kid. Of course, I had been racing for many years, so but I still didn't make the best choices and decisions or had to learn things that happen on the street that don't happen on a racetrack. But these days with, with cell phones and the distractions, it is very, very frustrating. I mean, I think I've always been a left lane is for passing left lane is for, if you want to go over the speed limit, you go there, do not do anything else in that left lane, get out of that left lane. So, you know, I've, I've said that many times. And so I'm certainly going to teach my kids, you know, the same thing and, and, and apply that to my own driving. But, you know, I, I definitely, I do worry about the, the driving age and, and what's happening with devices and phones and, and those distractions, the, the influences on my young daughter. I, I can't imagine. It's hard for me to, to fathom that I was driving a car at 16 yeah. when I look at her getting ready to just, they seem so Leave young. Leave the house without us in the car. That just <laughs> petrifies Terrifying. Me. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. I have a 15-year-old daughter also who's in that same. She still just has a learner's permit. Mm-hmm. So, But I'm... You're I've talked hours. You're over there. You're over there pushing, yeah. pushing your feet through the floorboard. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Scared every time, uh, you know. And uh, Right yeah. now, I'm just working on 
when you see somebody else's brake lights come on, that means you need to, to also <laughs> be a, applying your brakes. That's a good basic one. Yeah, that's all right. Now, do you drive really fast when you're when you're by yourself? Only on Jeff Gordon Expressway. Ah, yes, right. <laughs> I feel like I got a better shot. Yes, yes. No, do you know I, who I am? I, yes. I really try not to. I don't feel like it's something that, that you know, like, ooh, I can't wait to get on the street and go fast. It is harder when I'm I'm in a fast car, and maybe yeah. that's one of the reasons I didn't own them for many years. Uh, mm-hmm. Especially with the Z06, that car has so much horsepower, and makes such a great noise mm-hmm. that it just you can't help but want to rev it up and go and feel its acceleration and braking. But on a regular basis, I drive a Chevy Suburban, so um, not that it doesn't go fast, but it just I feel less uh, motivated or, or need to do that. So. All I can say is I haven't had a ticket in a very, very long time. Oh, that's time. nice. Where is Jeff Gordon Expressway? <laughs> it's right out here on 85 uh, as you as Into you the, speedway. the speedway. Oh, yeah. well, that's that's gold for you there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it needs to be about another five miles wrapped around 77 <laughs> to South Charlotte. Uh, you had a classic sort of opposites attract ri- rivalry with Dale Earnhardt Sr. Uh, tell me about how that evolved and it, it seemed really good for the sport at the time. A lot of people call that some of the glory days of NASCAR because of the contrast in the two of your styles. Yeah, well, I, you know, when I came in the sport, he's the man. I, you know, he, he, uh, I think he won his seventh championship, I believe, in 94, you know, which was, was you know, the year I won my first race. So when I came into it, when when you went to driver introductions, it was all about, yeah. Dale Earnhardt, when you were on the racetrack, you know, he, he was the guy. I mean, he could win on short tracks. He could win on super speedways, intermediates. And so I, of course, looked up to him and admired him, respected him. You know, that that didn't always come through on the racetrack because, you know, I, I think like everybody else, you're going to you're going to run into the intimidator at times and he's going to he's going to show you why that's his nickname. <laughs> and and I had that happen pretty early on in my career. Uh, but it didn't stop me from from really wanting to learn from him on the track as well as off the track. And as my popularity started growing, and I think what really happened is in '95 we we battled together for the championship, and mm-hmm. and so we're we're doing more media together, we're racing together more, and, and it and it just helped me get closer and at least understand him a lot more that year. And I think then maybe earned a little bit of respect back because, you know, we won the championship that year. Not too many people can say that, that Dale Earnhardt finished second to them. So, you know, really proud of that. And then my popularity started growing. And so Dale was very involved in the business side, the, the licensing and merchandising and, and, you know, sponsorship side of things. So he kind of took me under his wing a little bit there. And, and you know, I had plenty of questions to ask as well. And, and it was... Uh, yeah, it was good to be able to pick his brain and learn from him and, and be able to, to grow my brand in, in, in that side of the business for, for me as well at, at, at a time where the sport was really kind of blowing up. He was really, yes, ahead of his time on that part of it, too. I mean, licensing and marketing and all that. He also gave you the nickname early on Wonder Boy, which I think at the time you really didn't like. Am I remembering that right? <laughs> I mean, I didn't like any nicknames, I'll be honest. <laughs> I, I was just wanting to be Jeff Gordon. Yeah. And, and I think early on, 
I wasn't sure I was mature enough or able to really fully understand what Dale was doing there, right? I mean, he was doing something that was not only probably trying to get under my skin a little bit to get at a competitive advantage, but he also was recognizing what attracts people to the sport, right? Is is a rivalry and controversy and personalities coming out and playing. And he was so com- confident and comfortable with who he was because he had all the years of experience, but also he had a huge fan base. So he could almost get away with anything. And so at first I didn't understand it and, and maybe took offense to it. Over time, I, I started to appreciate it a lot more and, and, and appreciate in a way where I'm glad he did some of those things because it not only helped the sport grow, it helped my fan base grow. Right. He was uh, very smart about the way that in some ways the best rivalries have to have a big contrast, right? And Or in pro wrestling where you have the good guys and the heels or whatever. I know NASCAR is real, but still that you're, I hadn't thought of it that way, but it probably was a little purposeful, wasn't it? I don't know. I would have loved to have had more time, you know, with Dale later in both of our careers because I had a lot of questions for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just, just yeah. I don't know if I ever got a chance to flat out ask him. I always just assumed he was doing it to try to get a competitive advantage, to get in people's heads because mm-hmm. he was good at that too. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I ever quite understood or, or got a, a good answer from him of did he do it as much for trying to create this rivalry or, or or recognizing that my fans are a lot different than his fans and that was good for the sport not not really sure but hey it worked at my expense at times yes right. um but luckily i i was a good sport about it and and saw the benefits of it too we'll be back right after this Welcome back. Tell me about appearing on Saturday Night Live in 2003, 20 years ago now, was when you made that uh, appearance. I rewatched a little of it. Uh, you're really good and funny. So tell me about some of your favorite moments about that. Yeah, it was incredible experience. I can't believe that I actually turned it down the first time that it came. And I, I didn't do it because I felt like I was too good for it. It was that I didn't think I was good enough. I thought, you know, why would they want me? I'm going to embarrass myself. This is going to be awful. And, and I, I, I think a year later, when luckily the invitation came back around by NBC, I, I w- recognized and had enough friends to help influence me, some that lived in New York, to to make me realize, no, that's part of it, right? You, yeah. you got to make fun of yourself and you just got to go and, and have a good time. You know, ordinarily when I work, I'm wearing a fire retardant suit, going 200 miles per hour in a tin can filled with explosive uh, liquids. Every time I get in the car, there's a chance I could crash and burn in front of millions of people. So I guess I am prepared for this show. Hey, all right. It's nice to see some NASCAR fans. The greatest, I mean, I don't want to say the greatest experience of my life, but certainly the greatest, you know, like TV or live entertainment experience that I've ever had and ranks up there and probably top five of just greatest experiences right. that I've ever had. Yeah. Just because you're you're working in an environment that's so uh, far, you're so far removed from anything you're really comfortable mm-hmm. with. 
And it's a huge challenge because of that, as well as you're making new friends. You're meeting, you know, these cast members that you've watched on TV and just seeing their talent and their writing and their acting. And then you're part of this almost cult following uh, show that you get to be a part of for, for history. Uh, yeah, forever. And, and so I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't even, we could have a 45 minute discussion just on that alone, right? Of, of how intimidating it was, how much fun it was the you know, my heart pounding out of my chest when they're announcing you, to, you know, as, as the host and you're walking out on that stage live for that broadcast, it's, uh, you talk about an adrenaline rush. Wow. Yeah, that's something else. And your f- most famous character there was a guy named, was it Ricky? Ricky Funk. Ricky Funk. Yes, closed it out with Ricky Funk. <laughs> that was the last sketch of the night, wasn't it? It or, was. Yeah, yeah. And I put it all, I was building up to that. I put it all out there on the line <laughs> on that one. You played, who was Ricky Funk? Well, thanks for having me, Terry. Man. Thanks for letting me do my laundry here this afternoon. Smell your mom's dry sheets. Kiss. <laughs> You know, I'm basically in this basement. It's a t- It's sort of like, uh, um, oh my gosh, you know, Wayne's World Wayne's type, World. type of, yeah. of skit where you're down in the, you know, your your parents or grandparents' basement shooting a, a little TV show talking about nonsense things. And, and so I was his cousin or nephew or whatever I was that, that came in and, and we just talked about silly stuff. And I worked at a super Walmart. And, and so, yeah, it was, you know, I had, had the long hair and, and, and they put this fake mustache on me and I played the air guitar. It's just, uh, you know, it's just one of those characters where you got you, way outside you, yourself. You, you either yeah. go for it or, or yeah. it doesn't work. <laughs> Luckily <laughs> I, I, I did. But, I mean, every one of the, I, I, I think of uh, the skit with Seth Meyers where, uh, you know, he's a, uh, carpet salesman it's like bring your dad to school day yeah, yeah. and and so you know we talked about what our careers were and and his was a carpet salesman and i was uh you know an air force pilot <laughs> it just it just wasn't fair from the beginning and so i look at that skit and i laugh and you know i see jimmy fallon i see seth from from time to time and and you know have have some good laughs had a crazily good cast then tina fey and amy yeah. poehler i think yes. were a weekend update and yeah yeah the carpet salesman sketch was the one i believe where you that said something like you were trying to make the other dad feel good and said carpet's important. Uh, yeah. I, like I, what was it? Something about the red. You had walked down the red carpet to meet yeah, the president. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm not coming up with any of that writing. Right, that just right. goes to show you the brilliance of the writers. And and, and they I, do that every week. You walk around the uh, the studio and the offices there as you as you first arrive and you meet all the different writers and some of them are cast members as well. And you realize that they've been sleeping on their couch in their office for days and really? and, and just the, the, the passion that they have for trying to make sure that their skit gets on that weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming there's a little extra money in it, too, but, uh-huh. you know, there's a lot of pride in it. And, and so, you know, when you see that starting to build and they're asking you questions, what would you be comfortable with? Hey, I got this idea. And, and you start, uh, you know, hearing it come to life and then you see it throughout the week become a skit that, that actually gets uh, on the live show you're excited for them yeah, and uh-huh. and so yeah. you have a responsibility to pull it off also on your side so mm. it's it's certainly a team effort that uh is like many other things in life 
You, um, when you first came into the sport, I, and I'll read you a quote that you told me a long time ago. I think this was nine, uh, 2006. Uh, you said you were, I guess when I first came into the sport, I felt like I was under a microscope. I was kind of an outsider. I wasn't a Southern boy. I came from open wheel racing. I felt like, boy, I better do everything right that I possibly can to try and fit in. You were really trying to be perfect. How did you pull that off or did you feel more comfortable once people, you had a few dents in your reputation? Well, first of all, you know, you, you say that early in your career because you truly feel that way. But I think everybody does. I don't care what your background is. When you come into the Cup Series as a rookie, you feel like you have, uh, you know, all eyes on you, you know, judging you, especially if you're young, you know, you're just, and I see my kids, right? And they, I see them going through similar things in life. So I was young coming into the Cup Series. And yeah, I did come from a different upbringing or background where I grew up, type of racing. So I felt like maybe that added a little bit to the pressure of, and, and it wasn't just being accepted by the fans. It was being accepted by the other competitors. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was being tested the first couple of years, which, which is fine. You know, that's, that's, that's what a race car driver, if you're going to succeed, that you have to go through that. Some of it, you push yourself to the limit and sometimes others do too, but I really wanted to fit in or, or I wanted to be a part of NASCAR and the cup series and Hendrick Motorsports for a very long time and and I wanted to succeed at it. So I w- I was trying to do my best to say the right things, do the right things, you know, and 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 really learn all that I could to add to the sport and, and have a successful career. Luckily that that all came together. I I think when you work I I mean I've definitely learned when you care that much and you work that hard at it and you're surrounded by good people, whatever talent got you there that's good enough, right? That talent is is going to continue to keep you going if you have all those other things. And for those who don't know your background, uh, you grew up at first in California, but then moved to Indiana in part because you could. It was really for your racing career, right? And you there, um, if I remember this correctly, I think you you know you missed a prom or two, didn't you? Race on your graduation night. Uh, I did. Yeah, I graduated from high school and was racing that night. It was actually a World of Outlaw race in Bloomington, Indiana, and I think I finished like second to to Kinzer. I mean, it was like one of my best races that I'd ever had up to that, that point. Yeah, that that I mean, my life was all about racing. It's interesting. I, I've had a lot of conversations with my wife recently about this about and others too about what you sacrifice as you know when you find your passion early or your parents introduce you to to a sport what what are you going to sacrifice along the way is it worth it and i can look here to, you know, and sit back at 51 years old and go absolutely worth it because yeah did i miss out on some things were there times where my parents we're struggling to see where I w- my commitment was because I, I wanted to be you know with my girlfriend or I wanted to be with my buddies or I wanted to do a few other things. I thought they did a nice job recognizing it when I really was pushing for it. But the, at the same time, they they knew how important racing was to me and and provided me a, a, a great path forward there. But everything that I achieved and all the opportunities that came along with it far outweighed anything that I ever missed. missed. Yeah, I think most people would agree. (laughs) 
given all that at age 51 with the benefit of experience and now having children growing up to become teenagers and all the pitfalls and and wonderful things that come along with that. What would you tell if you could speak to the 18 year old Jeff Gordon right now? What would you tell him to do? What advice would you give him? Well, I'd say don't get married at age 23. <laughs> <laughs> That'd probably be the first first idea, thing. Right? Yeah. But as far as a race car driver, I don't know that I could have done it much different because it went went pretty well. Yeah. But but you know, you brought up feeling like you're you're being judged, you're under a microscope, got to do everything perfect. I, I definitely would have liked to have taken a little bit of that stress or or pressure off of my shoulders. Easy to say now. But but uh, if I could do it over, yeah, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I maybe would just try to figure out a little bit earlier on in my life, who am I? You know, what 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 you know, what does Jeff Gordon want to be remembered as or not remembered as? But who who am I where I can go out and just 100 percent be myself and and be happy with, you know, the decisions that I make, the person I portray? I mean, I, I say that because. I was a little programmed early on because I was afraid to make mistakes. I was afraid to, you know, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. I didn't want to lose a sponsor. I wanted to gain every fan that I could. I didn't want any fans to boo me, you know. And and so I think along the way, I probably wasn't as much me as I would have liked to have been if I could have done done it over. But that did come over time. People learn found the real Jeff Gordon and like the real Jeff Gordon too, right? <laughs> well, that's the thing. You don't you don't know, right? You're well, not, I guess not. Going, yeah. I don't know if they're going to like the real Jeff Gordon, right. you know, that came from Vallejo, California that likes hip-hop music and, you know, used to break dance and, you know, it took me years before I would open up to to, you know, the 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 life that that made me who I was, you know, other than what was the obvious that was already known. We'll have to go back to one of those things. Used to break dance. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about that at least. What, what, when did you do that? Uh, so let's see. In, when I was living in California, I probably started getting into that when I was in sixth grade, I want to say. So the way our school set up, you had an elementary school that went kindergarten through sixth grade and then you went to a middle school seventh eighth ninth and so some kids in my neighborhood were uh you were in it, i had a i have a sister who's four years older than me so i got to see her music choices and some of her older friends and some of the things she was being influenced by and and then blending that in with my friends that i was influenced by or or, or you know influenced at the same time and our music and things and so Breakdancing was very, very popular in California at that time. So I started doing a little bit of that in sixth grade just for fun, like in the neighborhood. And then I got seventh grade and all of a sudden everything oh, yeah. gets heightened and blown up. And movies. And takes a, yeah. yeah. People don't know how big that was. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. So it was in movies. It was in music. And in, in of course, MTV was huge. So it's in music videos. And the next thing I know, you know, a lot of my friends at school, because nobody was in racing, nobody knew anything. Not one person at my school knew what car racing even was. So that was my weekend thing. You know, we would leave on Friday, we go racing. But during the week, I was, you know, a, a teenager at Springstown Middle School. And and I was being, you know, this kid that, that was 
into music and uh, to to break dancing and and trying to to make my way you know through uh through middle school so next thing i know i'm i'm in you know the hallways during in between classes and at lunchtime and kind of doing these little shows sort of yeah I actually did two talent shows uh, with with break dancing with another group uh, as a group in a group of oh man dang (laughs) thank goodness that video does not exist (laughs) although I was a lot better back then than I than I was when I tried to do it in Las Vegas during a NASCAR event (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great well last thing Jeff let's uh, this is sort of a big picture question but think of all the history of NASCAR you now know and so if you were going to and of course, take yourself out of the equation. But if you're going to put up a a Mount Rushmore somewhere, let's say in the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte, and it could include four NASCAR figures that were the most prominent in your mind in NASCAR history, who would you put on your Mount Rushmore of NASCAR? Well, I, I would start with, with Bill France Jr., even though Bill France Sr. you know started NASCAR, I was I was around Bill Jr. and saw the influence that he had and the legacy that he built. So I would start there. Richard Petty. I mean, what Richard did for the sport, two hundred wins and the seven championships, and still today, you know, his influence on the sport is huge. Uh Dale Earnhardt, uh, you know, I think to me, Dale, you know, just brought a whole different level of of, of fans. So the tricky one is the is the last one. Trying to think, you know, should it be maybe a Rick Hendrick? You know, maybe it maybe it is a car owner that that like Rick that has the most wins and you know everything that he's accomplished in and contributed to NASCAR. I'd, I'd, I'd probably put Rick Hendrick up there. That's a good mix. Wow, that'd be uh, that's quite a quartet. Well, this has been Sports Legends of the Carolinas and Jeff Gordon. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. It was fun. Remember, you'll find much more about this interview and about all of our guests, including Steph Curry, Roy Williams, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and Don Staley, in our Sports Legends book. It's scheduled to be published in fall of 2023. Pre-order your copy now at sportslegendsbook.com. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally. Jeff Siner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and the executive editor is Raina Cash. Davin Coburn is McClatchy's director of audio. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription. And connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.